Amen. Now let me tell you something about Halloween before I get started. Satan loves to put his feet on things that God made and claim them for himself. Don't let him do that. You know what God says about Halloween? October 31st, this is the day the Lord has made. And we will rejoice and be glad in it. You know, God did not turn October 31st over to the devil. You know, one of the most significant events in the history of the church happened on October 31st because that's when in the midst of a dead, ritualized church that was overcome with religion, God raised up a little German monk named Martin Luther and on October 31st, he nailed his 95 complaints about what he saw in the church to the chapel door and the whole world shifted. That was October. So there's things to celebrate on October 31st. When I was a senior in college, I was involved in Campus Crusade for Christ. And they were going to have a party on October 31st. It was a costume party where everybody would dress up as a biblical character. I went as Noah. I got me a little squirt gun. I walked into the room squirting water up in the air and said, into the ark, into the ark, the flood is coming. And it was at that party that I met Linda. She was so impressed with my little squirt gun, she said, that's the guy for me. So celebrate October 31st. It's the day the Lord has made. We don't need to hand it over to the enemy. Well, now, this morning is our first fruit celebration for the month of Cheshvan. Everybody say, Cheshvan. Now I'll tell your neighbor, Gesundheit. So our message this morning is the Hebrew month of Cheshvan for 2022 a warning of judgment and a promise of grace. So Lord, we thank you for bringing us into this new month. We want to welcome you to our first fruit celebration for the Hebrew month of Cheshvan. Biblically, every month is a new prophetic season. God gave the sun and the moon and the stars to set forth our seasons. And so at the start of every new month, we want to ask, what is God saying this month? Now, Cheshvan is a very significant month. It's the eighth month of the Hebrew year. The number eight signifies revelation and a new beginning. Now, this is the only month with no Hebrew holidays. And the Jews believe God is saving this month for Messiah. That when Messiah comes and God's temple is rebuilt, they believe it will be dedicated in the month of Cheshvan. And so Cheshvan is a month for the Messiah. What a great month to pray for the Jews to come to know their Messiah. Now in the Hebrew calendar, we're in a season identified by the Hebrew letter Pei. And the letter pay in Hebrew means mouth. It was originally a picture of a mouth. And so a pay season is a season to speak, to make prophetic decrees, 
to declare what God has said. So what is God saying in Cheshvan? Well, Cheshvan, I think, is a month to declare two things. First of all, Cheshvan is a month to declare a warning of judgment. But Cheshvan is also a month to speak God's promise of grace. Now, the Jews associated two very important things with Cheshvan. First, it's associated with the tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh means to forget the pain of the past. I'll tell you, if you are weighed down by the pain of the past, God says he wants to set you free from that this month. This is a month to be restored from the pain of the past and enter into a new beginning. If you need a fresh beginning, latch on to it this month. But secondly, Cheshvan is the month of the great flood. The flood began in Cheshvan, so Cheshvan is a month of judgment but the flood ended the following year in Cheshvan, and God revealed the sign of his covenant faithfulness, the rainbow. And so Cheshvan is a month of God's grace. So let's first look at Manasseh. Now Manasseh was the firstborn son of Joseph, born to him down in Egypt. Now Joseph's whole life had been filled with pain. His brothers kidnapped him, beat him, sold him into slavery down into Egypt. He got to Egypt. He was falsely accused. He was thrown into prison. But God vindicated Joseph. And because he could interpret dreams, I'll tell you, your spiritual gifts can open doors for you. Because he could interpret dreams, Pharaoh gave him a high position and a, an Egyptian wife named Asenath. And so he married Asenath and their first child. When Joseph saw that child, he said, this is Manasseh. Manasseh's birth helped Joseph forget all the pain and injustice he had suffered. He forgot the pain of his past. Manasseh means to forget the pain of the past. And so when Joseph's father Jacob came down to Egypt, he adopted Manasseh and his brother Ephraim as his own, and he prayed great blessings over them. And God answered Jacob's prayer by showering great blessing on Ephraim and Manasseh. This is a month of blessing. Now Ephraim and Manasseh were so greatly blessed that their blessing became a standard by which all blessings are measured. When Jews, even today, many places in the world, when Jewish parents bless their children on Shabbat, they pray God would make their daughters like Ruth and like Esther and their sons like Ephraim and Manasseh. When Israel made it into the promised land, the best of the land was given to Manasseh. They got the biggest section of land on the east side of the Jordan River, and they got the second largest section on the west side of the Jordan. The territory of Manasseh was the richest and most productive part of the promised land. Manasseh was blessed above all the other tribes. The tribe of Manasseh birthed mighty warriors like Gideon and Jephthah. Manasseh was able to stand against the enemy and gain great victory. This is a month to stand against your enemy and break through into victory. 
And yet for all of their blessings, Manasseh was not loyal to God. I mean, there's a warning there. If God blesses you, make sure you're loyal to him. When the ten northern tribes rebelled against Judah, Manasseh joined with them. And King Jeroboam set up two golden calves, and he told the people to worship them instead of going down to God's temple in Jerusalem. And so Manasseh turned from the true God and worshipped the golden calves. Now God sent prophet after prophet to warn them. Elijah and Elisha were great signs and wonders and miracles. Jonah and Amos and Hosea all gave warnings. And while there were brief periods of partial repentance, Manasseh repeatedly turned away from God. And eventually, because of their continual idolatry, God's judgment fell. God let the ten northern tribes be conquered by the Assyrians. Their people were carried off as captives. The Assyrians took the leaders, the warriors, the educated, the skilled artisans. All that was left was a scattered remnant. And Manasseh was considered a lost tribe. And for centuries, everyone assumed that the tribe of Manasseh had been totally destroyed. Manasseh was a symbol of the terrible judgment of God. But Manasseh also demonstrates the grace of God. See, Manasseh had sinned and Manasseh was judged, but God had not forgotten Manasseh. Now here's an article from the Israel National News dated June 24, 2011. And it's about a remote tribal group in northern India that call themselves the Benai Manash, the sons of Manasseh. And they claim to be descendants of the tribe of Manasseh that was carried into captivity by the Assyrians 27 centuries ago. And the article says this. Throughout their exile, even when their one copy of the written Torah was lost, the Benai Manash continued to observe Jewish traditions, including Shabbat, keeping kosher, celebrating feasts, and remembering the exodus from Egypt. See, in their captivity, Manasseh repented. They turned back to the God of their fathers. And God preserved them and returned them to the land. That's called recovering all. Israel's chief rabbinate examined their claims and in 2005 officially recognized the Benai Manash as being descendants of Israel and granted them the right to return to the land. So after a 27 century exile, the tribe of Manasseh is back. Tell your neighbor it's never too late. That's called the grace of God. Revelation 7 tells us that in the last days the tribe of Manasseh will be fully restored to God and numbered among those who serve Jesus the Messiah. And so the tribe of Manasseh is a picture of judgment, but it's also a picture of grace. And this is a month to know that God judges sin, but he is full of grace for those who return to him. If you have drifted away from God, if you're not as close to God as you used to be, if you've even gone way out 
off the deep end. God wants you to know there's grace to return this month. You can get back to God. It only takes one step. So Cheshvan is a month of new beginnings. God, has, Tell your neighbor, God has a new beginning for you this month. This is a month of grace. Receive grace for a new beginning this month. And God wants you to know that even if you have messed up really badly, your future can be restored. And so Cheshvan is a month to see where you messed up in the past and repent. It's a month to return to God and experience his goodness. It's a month to know that God always keeps his covenant. But Cheshvan is not only the month of Manasseh, it's also the month of the great flood. Genesis chapter 6 through 8 says the flood began in the month of Cheshvan, and the flood ended the following year in the month of Cheshvan. In Cheshvan, God brought his sacrifice to the Lord, and God swore never again to destroy the earth with the flood. And in Cheshvan, God revealed the sign of his covenant, the rainbow. Now, since this, the month, since this is the month of the flood, we want to understand some things about it. The account of the flood begins in Genesis chapter 6. It says, when humans increase in number... The sons of God saw that the daughters of the humans were beautiful and married any of them they chose. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And when the sons of God came into the daughters of the humans and had children by them, they were the mighty men of old, men of renown. And God saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. His heart was deeply troubled. And so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, and he walked faithfully with God. And so God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence. I'm going to destroy them, both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark. And so the flood begins with an account of a demonic invasion of planet earth. It says, the sons of God saw the daughters of the humans were beautiful, and they married any they chose. Now that phrase, the sons of God, in Hebrew is benai Elohim, or the sons of the Elohim. Elohim can mean a supernatural being, a demon, a god, or an angel. And the angel, ancient Israelites taught that these benai Elohim were demonic beings who entered the earth realm to breed with humans. And the offspring of those unions between humans and demons were called the Nephilim, which in Hebrew means the fallen ones. Genesis 6 says, the Nephilim were the mighty men of old, men of renown. That means these are the guys you've read about. Because see, the Nephilim were widely known in the ancient world. They're often called demigods. 
And there are legends about them in many nations, in Rome and in Greece, in India and China. They're all mighty warriors and thoroughly evil. And the result of inbreeding with demons <coughs> is that the human race became thoroughly demonized. Humanity had given itself to the occult in every form of rebellion against God. Genesis 6 says every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. And see, demons cannot be redeemed. So a human race that's interbred with demons cannot receive salvation. And so judgment had to fall. The Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created. But Noah, in the midst of all that judgment, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And that brings us to the story of the flood. God instructed Noah to build an ark. And in that ark, God would shelter Noah and his family from the destruction that was coming on the earth. And since the destruction would be widespread enough to destroy every member of the demonized human race, God also brought to Noah samples of animals to be sheltered in the ark as well. And then it started to rain. With the flood, God wiped the slate clean and began a new humanity beginning with Noah and his family. Now we all know the story of the flood. We teach our kids about Noah and the ark in Sunday school. But, you know, I think many of us, in the back of our minds, there's something that says, could that really have happened? You know, the traditional interpretation of the flood is hard for many Christians to accept. It's even harder for unbelievers to accept. It goes against everything they've been taught in school about the history of our planet. And it can be a stumbling block that makes it hard for some people to receive Jesus. See, a lot of unbelievers think like this. They say, well, I want to receive Jesus, but if I want to do that, I have to believe the Bible. And Christians tell me to believe the Bible. I have to believe the whole world was destroyed with a great flood. And so since I don't believe that, I guess I can't receive Jesus. That's called a stumbling block. Now, that's why it's important to see that the traditional interpretation of Genesis 7 is not the only way to interpret that passage. Now, if you believe in the, uh, the traditional interpretation, I don't want to talk you out of it. That's valid. It's real. It could have happened that way. But for those who have a hard time accepting the traditional interpretation, I want to let you know there is another option. The traditional interpretation is that the flood was universal, that for more than a year, every square inch of planet Earth was covered with water. Now, this is Mount Everest, the tallest mountain on Earth. Its summit is five and a half miles above sea level. And so in the traditional interpretation, the flood would have had to have been deep enough to cover Mount Everest. That means the whole world would have been covered with water five and a half miles deep. And people say, well, where did all the water come from? Where did all the water go? 
And, you know, I've heard answers to all of those. And actually, I used to believe that. And if that's what you believe, that's fine. Some would respond, the Bible says that all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. So if we want to believe the Bible, don't we have to believe in a universal flood? So let's take a close look at what the Bible says. You know, it's one thing to say, I don't believe the Bible. It's another thing to say, I don't believe that interpretation of the Bible. See, Genesis 7, 18 says, The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth. Verse 19, the water prevailed more and more upon the earth. And it sounds like it's saying the water got so deep it inundated the earth. But the word earth there in Hebrew is the word eretz. It can mean earth, but it can also mean land or region or territory. So we could translate this, the water prevailed greatly upon the land. Or it prevailed greatly in this region. But what about the next line? The waters prevailed exceedingly and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. Now under the whole heaven makes it sound like a universal flood. But we need to understand that the Hebrew language uses lots of figures of speech. And under the whole heaven is a figure of speech that means a very large area. For example, in Job chapter 37, he's describing the display of God's power in a mighty thunderstorm. And we're told this storm is so powerful that its rumble goes out under the whole heavens. And its lightning flashes to the ends of the earth. Now, the Bible isn't teaching that the sound from that one storm was heard everywhere on earth. It's stressing that the thunder is so loud, it could be heard over a very large area. And so we could translate Genesis 7, 18 to 29 this way, the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the land, and all of the high hills in a very large area were covered, and all flesh in that region died. And every man. Now, while the flood didn't have to be universal, the flood was also not a little local flood. It was not just a river overflowing its banks. It had to cover a very large area, a major catastrophe. You know, Noah could not have just traveled a few hundred miles and be safe. He had to build an ark. It had to bring total destruction on every area of earth that was inhabited by the Nephilim. This was an unprecedented catastrophe. It had to bring destruction to such a wide area that it was necessary for Noah to take animals into the ark to repopulate the earth when it was over. Now, let me say this again. God could certainly have flooded the whole earth with water five and a half miles deep. He could have lowered the mountain so it wasn't quite as high as it is now. God could have supernaturally created that, mu that much water and then supernaturally removed it when it was time for the flood to end. But the words of Genesis 7 don't demand that level of flooding. And so today I'd like to share one alternative interpretation of the flood that does not contradict the Bible but it doesn't make a stumbling block to unbelievers. You know, I'd hate to see somebody go to hell because they couldn't buy my interpretation of the flood.
I want to begin with the scientific evidence for the flood. And let me just remind us, Texas wasn't quite like it is right now, back then. I mean, now, honestly, that's what is the stumbling block. You can't see the way God saw the world at that time. Mm -hmm. We didn't have the USA at that time. Yes, I'm sure there were lands, but there was different formations of the uh, oceans. Everything has, he changes it as he pleases. Mm -hmm. All the time it's changing. It's still changing today. Every disaster rearranges the land. All right? Does that help you a little? Amen. Now, while some Christians have doubts about whether the flood actually happened, the surprising thing is that many scientists are beginning to believe that a flood did happen. The first argument in favor of a flood came from anthropologists. Because the biblical account of the flood is not the only flood story. And anthropologists have found that hundreds of cultures all over the world have flood myths. And these groups have had no recent contact with each other, but they tell very similar stories. Their oldest legends record a terrible flood that destroyed most of the human race. And so anthropologists said, something must have happened to produce these stories. There must have been a worldwide flood storm. Second argument for a flood came from geologists. Who would have imagined that? And it came from a discovery that was, they made on the island of Madagascar. Because at the southern end of Madagascar, geologists found rows of enormous wedge-shaped sediment deposits they called chevrons. And these chevrons are like giant sand dunes, but they're huge. Each one covers twice the area of Manhattan Island, and they're up to 600 feet tall. And they're not made up of sand blown in from a nearby beach. They're made of deep ocean sediments from a location two and a half miles below the surface of the water and hundreds of miles away. And the most peculiar thing is the sediment includes deep ocean fossils, but many of them were fused with the kinds of molten metals typically found at meteor impacts. And the question is, how did these huge mountains of sediment get to the island of Madagascar? But then they made another discovery. They found similar formations of chevrons all around the Indian Ocean, and all of the chevrons were pointed toward the same place. It was a spot in the middle of the Indian Ocean, and there they discovered an enormous crater on the ocean floor. It's called the Burkle Impact Crater. The crater is 18 miles in diameter and lies two and a half miles below the ocean surface. That sediment came from that crater. So what caused this huge crater on the ocean floor? Well, many scientists now believe a massive comet struck the Earth about 3000 BC. And the force of the resulting explosion was unimaginable. To get an idea of the kind of explosion this produced, 
the largest nuclear bomb ever exploded was the SAR bomb detonated by the USSR in 1961. Its power was estimated at 50 megatons. That's huge. But the explosion created at the Burkle Crater was not 50 megatons. It was 200 million megatons. And the comet ripped through the atmosphere. It plunged into the sea, instantly vaporizing billions of tons of seawater. Superheated steam birthed super hurricanes worldwide. And the impact created mega tsunami waves that were over 600 feet tall. The tsunami waves deposited sediment from the seafloor all around the edge of the Indian Ocean. Molten rock rained down as far as 900 miles away. Discover magazine from November 2007 said this, 5,000 years ago, a three-mile-wide ball of rock and ice swung around the sun and smashed into the ocean off the coast of Madagascar. And the ensuing cataclysm sent a, season, a, a series of 600-foot high tsunamis crashing against the world's coastline and injected plumes of superheated water vapor into the atmosphere. And within hours, the infusion of heat and moisture blasted its way into the jet stream and spawned super hurricanes that pummeled the other side of the planet. And for about a week, Material ejected into the atmosphere plunged the world into darkness. All told, up to 80% of the world's population may have perished. He underestimated by a little bit. But he said it's the most single lethal event in human history. So that's how scientists think the Great Flood may have happened. It begins with a comet strike that produced worldwide storms and a massive tsunami going out in all directions. Now it's interesting, Genesis 7 lists two distinct sources for the waters of the flood. First it says the floodgates of the sky were opened. That's a 40 day and 40 night worldwide hurricane. Secondly, water bursting forth from the deep. That's tsunamis blasting out of the ocean depths. And as those tsunami waves traveled north, they're channeled between Arabia and India. And the water piles up higher and higher. And all of that water really only has one place to go, and that's through the Straits of Hormuz and into the Persian Gulf. And as the water surges through the Straits of Hormuz, it's like filling a wading pool with a fire hose. The Persian Gulf overflows its banks. Now here's what's important to understand. The area just north of the Persian Gulf is the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley. And it was the most important place in the ancient world. It's called Mesopotamia. It's called the Fertile Crescent. It's been called the Cradle of Civilization. It is, it's a huge basin more than 500 miles wide, more than 1,000 miles long. The empires of Babylon and Assyria and Persia would all one day be established there. This was the biblical world in the first chapters of Genesis. This is where the Nephilim lived. And it was here that Abraham would have grown up in the city of Ur a thousand years after the flood. Noah probably lived in this area also. And this is probably where the ark was built. Now, let me interject one more thing. 
He's after when demons start gaining great activity in the earth. In, as in the days of Noah, Jesus said, Yeshua said that. When demons start gaining great activity and controlling entire sections of the world, he's going to do something. You need to just thank him that he's going to wipe out those demons some way. Amen. You don't have to try to figure it out. You just ride the wave. It's not <laughs> going to be a flood, but floods will come. But he won't destroy the world with a flood any longer. The issue is his covenant against the covenant of hell. Now, understand that when he sees constant concentrated demon structures ruling he can send whatever he wants to wipe it out we don't care just say somebody needs to go and it ain't me and let me just say God has lots of ways he can send judgment it's not hard for him I mean he flicked that little comet just a little bit off its course and did in the world. And as a super hurricane rages 40, for 40 days, the rivers overflow. And meanwhile, water pouring through the Straits of Hormuz moves up the valley. And the Tigris-Euphrates Valley quickly becomes a vast inland sea more than 1,000 miles long and more than 500 miles wide. And it says the waters prevailed greatly on the land. And all the high hills in that very large area were covered. And everything living in that world is destroyed. The greatest catastrophe in human history. But it says the ark was floating on the surface of the water. And over the course of a year, the ark drifts slowly northward. At the northern end of that valley are the Armenian highlands. They're also known as the mountains of Ararat. And when the floodwaters finally recede, the ark is left high and dry on the mountains. Judgment had come, but God had preserved a remnant. The human race had turned from God and interbred with demons. They were in total rebellion against God, and God's judgment was decreed. And so Cheshvan was a month of judgment. In Cheshvan, God wants us to know judgment is real. God does not enjoy judgment. He's always patient. He always wants to give us plenty of time to repent. But during the years the ark was prepared, Noah preached to his generation and urged them to repent, and they wouldn't. But because God is patient, it's a mistake to think that judgment will never come. Something that some people think they can sin all they want and never suffer consequences. But God wants you to know there comes a time for judgment. And however you interpret Genesis 7, the main point is there is a time for judgment. And judgment came in Cheshvan. But as the judgment was about to fall, we're told Noah found grace in God's eyes. So Cheshvan is a month of grace. Because if we return and repent, turning from sin to seek God, there is always grace. And so because Noah walked with God, he received grace. 
The story of Manasseh was judgment, but also grace. And that's also the story of the flood. Just as God gave grace to Manasseh, God gave grace to Noah in the midst of the flood. And even when the world is under judgment, God gives grace. Lord, we thank you. There's always grace. And grace came in Cheshvan. The storm of God's judgment was raging across the earth and the future of the human race looked like it would be cut off, but God's grace opened the door to a whole new future for Noah. God provided a place of peace and safety for Noah in the midst of the storm. And so Cheshvan is the month of judgment, but also the month of grace. And it's also the month of a new beginning. Cheshvan is the eighth month. Eighth is the number of new beginning. See, the flood not only began in Cheshvan, the flood ended in Cheshvan. In Cheshvan, Noah and his family left the ark. They made, God made a covenant to never destroy the earth with a flood and gave Noah a covenant sign called the rainbow. So the month of Cheshvan is a month to remember the reality of judgment. But it's also a month to turn to God and receive grace. It's a month to forget the pain of the past. It's a month to be restored to God. It's a month to go through the door to your future. It's a month to receive God's covenant promise. His covenant promise to you is this. I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So welcome the month of Cheshvan. Even when you see judgment at work in the world, know that God has grace for those who will turn to him. So turn to him this month. If you, need, if you know you're not where you need to be with God, find a time today to, today to get alone with God. If there's sins you need to confess, go ahead and confess him. Open your life to him. Let him bring restoration and healing to you. Then set your heart to seek God. Receive grace for your new beginning this month. Lord, we thank you for the month of Cheshvan. Lord, we thank you. It points out very clearly the reality of judgment. But Lord, there's always grace. So Lord, we open that door of grace. Let your grace be released to your people this month in Jesus' name. Wow, let's thank the Lord for that. Now, why... Cheshvan is so important is because it's both Old and New Testament. As in the days of Noah, Yeshua said, so we have to go back to understand the days of Noah because Yeshua said we would enter back into a time like that. Now, this is the way I always see Cheshvan. It is the only month without a holiday. And the Lord has always shown me this month to create one my own. In other words, celebrate in a way 
enter into grace in a way that when you feel that new beginning coming in, you circle it on your calendar. And that becomes the activation for the year ahead. Lord, I loose us into a new holiday. In Jesus' name. Lisa, come up here. I, I don't want us to go. Something happened to Lisa this morning. And when you text me, I mean, because y'all are always texting me crazy things. But when you text me, it quickened in me. She, I mean, by the Spirit. Here's the other thing. Just get to know the Holy Spirit and you won't worry about it all. And if you don't sense the spirit where you're at, whether it's in a movie or a grocery store, run. Because <laughs> things are changing rapidly. That's why we got to get to know the spirit of God. Lisa texts me and said, the electricity has gone out in my house. And I can't get my car out of the garage to come now there was some warning in that for us and I want to just prophesy it. the Lord says you be ready for your way of escape if your car isn't taking you there find the way that I have for you to go the Lord says I got lots of ways and lots of avenue for you to get to where you're going do not agree with that closed door that's trying to block you in. I say to you, I can send the power you need to get to where you are going. Give a shout. Put your hand on somebody and say, create your holiday this month.